Uh, This morning we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 3, but before we get to the text this morning, some people have famous athletes that we would call our heroes, right? Have you ever heard the basketball player whose hero hero would be Michael Jordan, right? Might be someone they would consider. Or, for instance, someone who loves fiction books might say that their fictitious hero is Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. They love the character that's there. For me, my hero is my mother. I (laughs) I am unashamedly a mama's boy. Any other mama's boys in the room? Uh, I see that hand. Thank you. I, w- I worry sometimes that, that we're a dying breed, mama's boys. Like, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with loving your mother, okay? Goodness. But listen, my mom is my hero. Unashamedly, I love her to death. And, and we've always been very close. And we would chat about everything when I was growing up. We spent so much time together. My mom and I actually had friends, and they're like long-standing family friends that lived on the same street that she grew up on. So what we would do, at like every evening for several years, she would drop me off at my buddy's house, continue five houses down the road, and go to her buddy's house. And then she'd pick me up on our way home, and we'd head back to our house. Like, mom and I had routines baked into our lives around doing the same things, either together or separately, and then we'd chat about our times. Like, that was my mother and I's relationship growing up, she blessed that woman. Like, she took me to all the sporting events. And I mean all the sporting events. Like, this woman would get up. She would work at 7. She'd get up at, like, 5.30, drive me across Youngstown to drop me off at a park and leave me there because I, I, was, I was old enough to be left at a park this early in the morning, I promise. It's okay. My mom was not negligent. She would leave me at this park so that I could go to a soccer tournament on a weekend, but she had to work. She couldn't be there, so I had to get a ride with someone else. So she would drive me 30 minutes away just to drop me off to meet someone else before she would go to work. I don't deserve that woman. Goodness. But... My mom always modeled for my sister and I sacrificial love, and it is something I've always been thankful for, and that's why she's my hero. But I'm going to be honest with you, as close as we were, there are only two times I remember vividly in my life that my mom and I fought, or she was angry at me. And let me be clear, when my mom was angry at me, she was right. Okay, she was right. I was wrong. She was right. Like, listen, mom's always right, Yeah. Y'all have to, like, adapt that. I was talking to someone earlier. I feel like that's true of sons. Sons have to say mom is always right. But (laughs) I feel like daughters can sometimes argue with mom and somehow get away with it. But I can tell you, I could never say. I could never say that mom is wrong. And in this instance, we'll talk about today, she was right and I was wrong. And this is a great husbandly lesson to learn as well. Husbands, your wife is right. And it is okay. It is okay. I've learned this lesson very well. If I choose to be right in a moment when I am still wrong, I am even more wrong than I could ever ask to be, and I am deserving of the wrath of my wife should it come. But anyways, in this, so in this story where my mother and I were not seeing eye to eye, I actually wanted, after I graduated high school, to move to Texas and pursue an internship because I had just caught in fire with the Lord And I was very much looking forward to ministry, what that looked like, music, all sorts of things. So I unenrolled from college, which was fully paid for, mind you. So she wasn't happy about that. And then I packed all my bags, fundraised a few thousand dollars, and moved across the country. Rightly so, my mother was upset with me. 
But, and here's what happened. Like, I go through this internship process. It was great. I learned a lot. And then I realized after nine months, I am stranded in Texas with no money in an apartment that I live with three other dudes that were about to lose the apartment. And I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> like, in that time of life, it was tortillas dipped in ranch were common lunch snacks for me. Like, that was just the season I was in. And, and, and now, my mom... When she would get angry, y'all know the angry person that like yells at you, spits in your face, is furious with you? You're like, you got that angry person. And that person you're kind of afraid of, right? But man, my mom was the, the cold, <laughs> the cold angry person. So like you'd walk into a room with her and she wouldn't, you just wouldn't talk. And I'm like, wait a second, where's the bright cheery woman that I spend all my time talking to? and engaged in this relationship with. I love my mom. And so I would like do all these things like trying to get my mom to talk to me even before I left and it didn't go too well. But basically the scene is I'm in Texas, I'm not doing well and I need out and I don't really have a way out. And so my mom being the incredible woman that she is, even though she's angry at me, my mom decides to show mercy on me and not with any malice in her heart. She says like, David, you could just come home one afternoon on the phone. She's like, why are you sitting there like going out of your mind? Just come home. I was like, oh, I thought you were still mad at me. But the reality is my mom was modeling the concept of where wrath intersects with mercy for me. And in that same way that my mom showed me mercy that I did not deserve, I did not deserve her mercy to be able to come home She gave it to me, and honestly, she had every right to still be mad at me, but she laid that down because she loved me. And friends, God does that same thing for you and I. Does he not? Are we not deserving of God's angry, anger in a lot of different ways? Like, hear me out. If y'all look at me and say, David, no, I don't deserve God's, oh, trust me, you surely have done something to incur God's wrath, pre-salvation, of course. You've surely done something that deserves the anger of God, but you were shown mercy time and time again. And you will be showed mercy time and time again. But we all have that same need in our lives. Even though we all will experience the anger of someone else or from God as we deserve it, we will be shown mercy because we have a very deep integral need for it, for mercy. And that is the truest of our relationship with Jesus. We fully deserved his wrath, but he continually showed us grace and mercy. And so, in the same way that we deal with this concept, we are going to uh, experience a passage today from the book of Habakkuk, which, in context, Habakkuk and the people of Israel are so deserving, so deserving of God's wrath. And yet, the petition that is going to be made is that Habakkuk is going to ask God to remember to be merciful to his people. And the word, the Hebrew word for this concept of mercy that we experience, it's rahum. Go ahead, say rahum for me. Get it out of your system. Very good. Wow, oh my gosh. You guys are all Hebrew in here. Goodness. Right, rahum. And so this is a great, this is a great word. I want to be careful not to freight it, put too much meaning onto one simple word. But while this word can also be understood as mercy, a better translation for it in English is probably compassion. Compassion is probably a better word for it. This word is also used to describe a woman with a child in her womb. She rahums, has compassion for the very child she is carrying to birth. And so I laugh. I'm like, man, my mom literally rahumed me back home. 
feel me when I was in Texas? Goodness gracious, I didn't deserve that. So now, we're going to be looking at the, the final moments of the book of Habakkuk, which is it's in its entirety, chapter 3. But before we get to the message of Habakkuk, I want to lay out the context for you, because here is the reality. A text without context is either a pretext or a proof text. If you get a text without context, you just got conned. So, I don't know who to quote for that. That's just like an old preacher's bit. It just stuck in my brain. Right? You need context to understand the text. So we're going to look at two, two quick aspects of context this morning. First, we're going to look at the historical backdrop of the book of Habakkuk, because I'm sure, I know you read about it yesterday, because you regularly study from Habakkuk. But just in case, I'm going to remind you. And then also, we are going to look at the literary structure of Habakkuk and what is going on that leads us to these final moments in the book itself. Okay, so historically speaking, Habakkuk is situated in the divided kingdom era. This is, and this specifically, it's maybe roughly in the 600s. Dates aren't important. What is important to understand is that the 12 tribes of Israel are no longer joint. They are divided in kingdom, 10 in the north, 2 in the south. And at this point in history, the 10 northern tribes of Israel have been taken away. They've been exiled by the Assyrians. And all that remains standing is Judah alone. And Judah knows her time is coming because they see these people on the horizon. They see, they call them the Chaldeans. You and I know them commonly as the Babylonians. And the Babylonians will come in exile the people from Judah. But at this moment, it has not yet happened. Though Habakkuk is very aware, he sees a vision from the Lord that they're coming, and it's apparent, and he is not happy that they are coming to overthrow Israel. And so Habakkuk will even actually plead with God through this book, and he is going to, he's going to argue with him saying, you're going to use these people to come and take us out? But like, he describes the Babylonians as fishermen. He says they just hook different nations. They put them in giant nets, and then they can just empty their nets and go take another nation. How can that be right? How can you let that happen to us? And so that historical context is what leads us to the literary structure of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is in this form. It's a poetic form, we would call it, of a lament. Are you familiar with lament concept? So if you're not... A lament is simply this. It's a structure commonly used in the Psalms where, whereby a writer will make a petition or a cry to God or a complaint to God about something in their life or about their situation, and they will ask God to move on their behalf. Usually they would say, remember me in this distress, God. Right? They're petitioning for God to move on their behalf. And here's the thing. And not in every Psalm like that do we see resolution immediately. But almost in every psalm do we see the writer turn to this moment of trust. It's the all-important close of a lament. This turn to trust and praise God regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what you've walked through. He's still worthy of praise. And so this is the structure. And so Habakkuk levels two petitions to God. First, he complains about Israel and how they are failing to follow God's Torah, his law. There's injustice throughout the land, and also, uh, and, and also that they're turning away to idols in this season. And, I, and God's response to that is, well, fine, I'll use the Chaldeans to destroy Israel. 
And Habakkuk's like, no, 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 no. That is not what I had in mind. No, thank you. Let's not do that. But here's the irony of Habakkuk pushing back against this. Is Israel not acting as a nation just like Babylon in their, at this point in their history? He's complaining about the injustices that these evil people do when his very people, Israel, do the very same things. Can't have your cake and eat it too, Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk's second petition then is that Babylon is so much more evil than Israel that he, God couldn't, shouldn't even be able to look upon that nation, much less use them to destroy Israel. And so God's answer is simply that other nations are going to come and overthrow Babylon too. Because the reality is, the great nations that we see throughout the history of the world all go into these terrible traits, right? Rome had terrible things about it as an empire. The, the Greeks had terrible things about their empire through Alexander the Great's conquest. Throughout history, every nation that has risen up and been great has had terrible things ascribed to them and associated with them. And the charges that are going to be laid against the Babylonians are things like slavery. And I'm like, I see a lot of slavery in history of great nations. Don't you? Idolatry. I sure see a lot of idolatry in great nations. Right? He's make, God's making the point in his response. All nations fall under the same problems. It's just a question of which nation it is this time. And so... That is the second complaint Habakkuk petitions to Yahweh in his response. And with this in hand, we are missing the final element of the lament, which is Habakkuk's turn to praise, which we will find in chapter 3, right? This very trust and confidence that God is, God, you having this trust in God leads you to a place where you can still praise him regardless of your situation. Okay, we've got... Habakkuk 3 context out of the way. You did it. You survived my history lesson and my Hebrew lesson. I'm so proud of you. If you needed to hear that today, you got this. Well, cool. In the text of Habakkuk 3, we're going to see three movements. I'll explain them in long. I'll give them to you. Then I'll give them to you in short. The first movement, I would say, is that God's might is radiant and terrifying. That summarizes that first section. The second section is that God brings salvation through judgment. And the third and final section is that your circumstances don't change God's worthiness. And you're like, Pastor David, none of that is memorable. So let me help you. I would say that God is mad. God is M-A-D. God is mighty. God is always saving. And that God is deserving. Mad. Deserving is that last letter. God is deserving of our praise. And let me be crystal clear as I'm talking about this. God... God's mad, and rightly so at his people in this context. But he's also merciful. Helplessly merciful. Let, let's look at the first few verses here in Habakkuk 3 together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If, or if you kept your finger there, good job. So here are the first two verses, Habakkuk 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I was afraid. In the midst of the years, make it known. In anger, remember mercy. Can you say that last phrase, in anger, remember mercy with me one time? In anger, remember mercy. This is a beautiful, beautiful call of Habakkuk to God. Basically, Habakkuk is taking God's self-revelation, what God would say about himself, and handing it right back to him. Uh, hear, me, hear me well. 
Do you remember God's words of self-revelation? They come from Exodus 34, chapter 6 and 7. I have it for you on the screen. It says this. So, then the Lord passed in front of him, i.e. Moses. We're talking about Exodus here. Lord passes in front of Moses. This is the infamous passage where we, one would show, joke that uh, Moses saw the backside of God as he passed away because he couldn't stand to look at his face and then his face is going to shine white after seeing God in this encounter. And so this is what the Lord says about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, this is commonly understood as one of the most quoted passages throughout the entire Old Testament. People refer, refer back to this text several times because this is what, it's important, this is what God chose to say about himself, specifically in his nature. And so Habakkuk is very aware of who he's petitioning. And I love this. Rather than be like, rather than come to God and be like, you know, I know that you're compassionate, mercy, slow to anger, founding in steadfast love. Rather than just hanging on the first half of this, Habakkuk's smart. He just flips it on his head. He doesn't leave out the fact that God is angry or deserving to be angry. He starts with it. He says, God, in your anger, which you should have towards us and your people because of how terrible we've been, in your anger, don't forget about who you said you are. Merciful, rahum, compassionate, and slow to anger. God is going to be consistently who he says he is. So while God is mad, he still is also merciful. The two work together in harmony. All right. Let's dig into the meat of this passage a little bit more. So, uh, for starters, right, the first M of God is mad and merciful, right? God, we're going to start with God's mighty depiction, right? Habakkuk paints him as mighty in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 7. I'll read it wholesale. Here it comes. Verse 3. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and the hiding of his might is there. Before him goes plague, and plague comes forth after him. He stood and caused the earth to shudder. He looked and caused the nations to jump. Yes, the everlasting mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His paths are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Creation has a visceral reaction when its creator walks into the room. If God's might is radiant and terrifying, as in this passage, surely God's creation is capable to recognize and respond in awe to that reality. Doesn't that include us? I'm, I'm curious. So many times we take for granted the fact that we can meet the presence of God, not only in this sanctuary on a weekly basis, but at home in our bedrooms when we crack the word and he speaks to us through it. 
I have to ask you, because, and it's probably not true of all of you, but it might be true of some of you. Have you grown complacent in your understanding of your place as creation? Are you still willing to praise God even though you don't feel like it sometimes? Even though you're tired? Even though you've done it a thousand times? Because listen, creation is going to groan every single time. Every single time its creator comes into the room. And for you to potentially make the decision to not praise is to put you in disorder from the rest of creation. Because we ought to fall in line with the very reality that we are to praise our creator. We should be more aware of his presence when we walk into the room than anyone else. Friends, I want to press you. There's nothing in your life that should be able to stand between you and your ability to align with creation and praise God. The rocks will cry out. How much more should you? So if God's might is where Habakkuk chooses to start in this passage, that's our first point. We now move into our second point, which is simply this, right? God always saves. M-A, always saves, right? And we're going to read a little bit of a longer section of Habakkuk's prayer here in chapter 3. But I want to just give you two things to look for as we read through this passage together. First, I want you to notice the conquering warrior imagery that you're going to see throughout this text. That God is a conquering warrior. And second, I want you to notice there is this connection that's happening between God's salvation and his judgment. Okay? Salvation and his judgment. So here it is, Habakkuk 3, 8. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your rage against the sea that you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? You removed your bow from its holder. The arrows of your word were sworn. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep raised its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their lofty places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your flashing spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, that is to say, his vice regent. You smashed the head of the house of evil to uncover him foot to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his leaders. They stormed in to scatter us. Their arrogance was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the foam of many waters. Now, I want you to see this too. The beginning and the end of this passage are actually the same water and horse imagery, right? You have the horse's chariots is the first way it's described. And then you, at the end, have again uh, the foam of many waters that God tramples on the sea with his horses. Uh, this is what we call a literary inclusio. So an inclusio is basically when, I know it's a scary word, it's not as scary as you think. The beginning and the end are simply the same to bind a literary unit as a whole. In other words, this section is supposed to be taken together. And through this section, you are taken back to the same image in the inclusio, right? And that image is the Exodus account, right? When the people of Israel came through the waters, when the people of Israel came through the waters, God is not only going to judge the chariots that chase them through, 
but also he has officially condemned the gods of Egypt and left them in his wake as the conquering warrior saves his people by judging the Egyptians. And if you don't catch it, when it comes to the account of the Exodus, God isn't fighting with Egypt per se as a nation. God is actually proving the point that the gods of Egypt have no say and no, they, they don't hold water against him, right? Each of the 10 plagues is actually able to be attributed in that story to a specific Egyptian god that has no power before Yahweh. Take, for instance, the Nile River. It was turned to what? Blood. They believed that the Nile was a river god. Here's the problem. The river god's blood is now throughout his stream. Is he dead? Is he asleep? Why is he not managing the river like he always has? Or take, for instance, Pharaoh, who the people regarded as God. Pharaoh wasn't able to protect his firstborn, was he? Instead, he was rendered powerless. Right? God, in the Exodus account, brings salvation through judgment. And even more so, God makes the point that no other God can stand before him. That's what Habakkuk's holding in his mind as he goes through this section. And you see this victory of God is militaristic. And it's this, like, stomping and storming of God throughout the nations, and that no nation is safe when Yahweh comes to bring judgment. And, and it's so true, God's judgment is often the vehicle of his salvation. And while it's true in Exodus, Habakkuk has to believe that that is going to be true in his situation, and that's terrifying because he doesn't know what the judgment of him and his people is going to look like beyond the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, coming to sweep them away. He doesn't know. Lord, I don't see how we're going to be saved through our destruction. And he's going to turn to trust after this, I promise. But Habakkuk didn't understand. Because right, there's this messianic expectation in the Old Testament. They know that a Messiah will come and save them. They believed that that Messiah would be a conquering warrior. That's why Habakkuk would even choose to use this language of conquering king in descriptions of God. And they think of kings like David, who had great military conquests over Goliath and the Philistines. And they see these different things throughout history. But the reality is, they didn't get a conquering king that came. Instead, they got a suffering servant. The suffering servant of Jesus. And catch this connection. Salvation through judgment happened at the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, in Exodus. And salvation through judgment happened at the cross. The cross was the moment of God's choice to be self, I, I like this term for it, self-destructive. He chose to let himself be destroyed so that all people could be saved on the other side of that should they simply declare Jesus as Lord and believe that he rose again from the dead for them. The gospel truth, excuse me, the gospel truth is this. God was willing to judge himself to save you you were worth being saved, and you still are worth being saved. And Habakkuk didn't have that reality like you and I do. He didn't know that the suffering servant was coming, but I'm here to tell you today, the suffering servant came. Salvation is for you today. Jesus, the suffering servant, died for you and me. Rose again from the dead, conquering the grave. And this very gospel truth is why we can come to the place of praise. 
And Habakkuk didn't have that reality, but he's going to get there. The last point, and I'll be brief, from Habakkuk 3, right? M-A-D, he is deserving, deserving of our praise, regardless of our circumstances. Here it is, Habakkuk 3.16. I heard, and my inner parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will attack us. Even if the fig tree does not blossom, and there is no fruit on the vines, and the yield of the olive fails, and the fields produce no food, even if the flock disappears from the fold, and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph. In the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like deer's feet and has me walk on high places. Return to trust. Beautifully satisfied in Habakkuk's words. No matter the circumstances, Habakkuk will still praise God. And that posture, my friends, is what I pray we are capable of having. God might be mad, but he was merciful then. He was merciful at the cross, and he's merciful now. God hasn't changed. We would use the fancy word, God's immutable. He doesn't change. And I want to make sure I'm clear. Habakkuk's modeling something important for us in his lament form. Habakkuk models for us that you and I should have no concerns and no fears by being honest with God. Habakkuk is very clearly honest with God at each and every step of the way. He's honest with him when he says, I don't think we deserve this judgment. He's honest with him when he says, these people are so much worse than we are. And friends, God is not afraid. God is not afraid whatsoever of your honesty with him. There's nothing you can say that will shock God into not liking you. If anything... God consistently honors the prayers of the people that are honest. So friends, I want to encourage you. You have a God that wants to listen to you. Speak up. So in close, my, I have three challenges that may or may not fit for you this morning, and they derive straight from the three points. So my first is simply this. Friend, if your praise has grown cold, if it's grown cold in this season in life, for whatever reason that is. I want you to take some time this week and, and do this. Sit down and actually identify in your heart what is preventing you from getting to a place of warm praise again. What's in the way? And if you bring before God what that very thing is that's in the way, I am believing that he will move on your behalf. That's one challenge for you. And maybe, maybe you say, well, my praise isn't necessarily cold, Pastor David. That's fine. Uh, maybe you're coming from a challenging season of life, whether it's one you've been in previously or it's one you're in right now. And I would say this to you. My challenge for you would be to take model of what Habakkuk did. I want you this week to actually write down a lament. And it's so simple. Writing a lament just looks like this. You write your petition to God, your complaint to him. Bring it before him. Be honest, be ugly. He wants it as it comes out of you. And you could write down all the things that are wrong with it, that are driving you nuts with that very complaint. And then I want you, prayerfully, to make a declaration of trust at the end of that. And it's going to hurt. It won't feel good. And in that declaration of trust, tell God that he's still worthy. So if there's something in your past you haven't processed just yet, 
and it comes to mind right now, and I'm confident the Holy Spirit will bring it to your mind if you need to work it out. Or it's a season right now of life. Would you do that for me this week? And this world's not for me, it's for you. Do it for yourself. Do it for the sake of your relationship with Jesus. And lastly, friend, if you have not, if you have not encountered this gospel truth this morning before, and you haven't let it sink in or taken it to heart yet, that Jesus was willing to be destroyed through judgment so that you could be saved. If you have yet to come to a place of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have yet to declare Jesus as Lord, believing that he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave, I want to pray that with you this morning. And so can we do this, friends? You, I'm confident, for those of you who have prayed a prayer like this, whether it's the first time or for the thousandth time in this, would you repeat with me? Can we bow our heads in prayer together and just simply repeat these words after me? Jesus, Jesus, I declare you as Lord over my life. Would you come into my heart? I believe that you rose from the dead for me to transform me, and to forgive me. Jesus, I hand you my sins, my wrongdoings. Would you make me new? Lord, would my decision not stop here, but move into being a disciple of yours? And it's in your name, Jesus. We pray this. Amen. Amen, friends. Saints, if this is your first time accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please tell someone. We have a new here table. We would love to chat with you about this and get you resourced so that you can walk out of the decision that you've made today and become a disciple and not simply just stop and go into your normal everyday life and pretend like nothing happened. Or I would love to talk with you about that decision and support you in your journey. Friends, it's an honor to be with you today. In our traditional radiant family benediction, be careful what you watch, be careful what you listen to, and be careful what you talk about. Savor the presence of Jesus. Have a delightful week, friends.